think I thought, if I let him take all this out on me, it will show him that I love him, that I'm not going anywhere, that I'm not going to betray him like everybody else in his life has, that eventually he's going to see that I'm really committed to him. And somehow I convinced myself that allowing him to treat me this way was helping him. You're listening to We Are Magic, a podcast about trauma, healing, and transformation. We Are Magic serves to be a collective archive of survivor wisdom and to collect stories from the true experts in the field of trauma, the survivors. My name's Jesse. I'm a marriage and family therapist, art therapist, and a righteous survivor of my own trauma. This podcast holds pretty intense content with each episode, and I encourage you to check in with yourself and take good care of yourself. Content warnings will be read before each episode. everybody welcome to we are magic this is episode four my name is jesse i'm the host of this podcast thank you so much for tuning in welcome i'm gonna take a couple minutes right now before we get into today's great episode and the introduction to that great episode to talk to you about some feedback i've been receiving and that feedback is i want to come on the show how do i come on the show my friend wants to come on the show my friend would be great for this show. <laughs> and this is all fantastic, and I'm very excited to hear it. Please excuse my fridge, which just decided to come on. I'm glad you're on fridge, because you're keeping my food cold. <laughs> but anyway, this is what happens. I'm recording in my kitchen. Anyway, getting back into this. If you would like to come on the podcast, that is fantastic. I am super excited to have you on. I would love for you to email me. Okay, the email is wearemagicpod at gmail.com. Again, that's wearemagicpod at gmail.com. P-O-D, wearemagicpod at gmail.com. At this point in time, that's the only way that I can start the process of getting you on the show. I'm not at this point reaching out to very many people in regards to sharing their story. I have reached out to a few, but I was well aware that they had shared their story before or were actively sharing their story in some way, and it was was a conversation. But for most of these, um, they have come to me. Um, I've done like an open call and or, you know, people have signed up and said, yeah, I'm I'm on board. And I want to kind of keep it that way as much as I can because I want this to be an organic process I want it to be consensual and I want it to just feel very safe for the guest I want them to kind of make that choice and say yes I want this right I want to as we were talking about in the last episode with Neha I want to really respect someone's yes so yeah that's that so please email me and we can get the process started a couple other things that I think are very important is when you come on the podcast you can remain completely anonymous okay Most of my guests thus far have shared their first name, their last name, and sometimes even their socials. That doesn't have to be the case every time, and I'm sorry if it's been any misunderstanding around that. You can come on and be completely anonymous. 
you can just give a first name, you can give a fake name, you know, any pseudonym that you feel comfortable going by, right? But in terms of like your social media and your contact information or your location, none of that has to be disclosed. Um, some For some people, that feels really amazing to do that and to kind of share, but it can create some anxiety for a lot of folks. So I want to create safety around that and just let you know that you can remain completely anonymous on this podcast. So which leads me to my second point, which is sort of what it looks like from first contact to recording to release. Okay. Once you email me, we will hop on what's called like a 10 minute introductory phone call. It's completely off the record. That's just a space for you and me to talk about you know, why are you sharing your story? What are you hoping to achieve by sharing your story? What exactly do you want to share? And what is kind of off limits for you? Are there things that you aren't ready to share or just don't feel comfortable? We'll talk about that and I will make notes about it. That way, again, I can create a safe experience for you. Once that's done, we schedule a recording time. If you are in Southern California, you may come to me and we can do it in person. It'll be great. If you're not, we can do it over phone and Skype and it'll be great. (laughs) Um, And we can work that out. So yes, if you're in Southern California, come to me and we can record in person or we can do it over Skype or Zoom. Um, All you'll need really is a laptop with a microphone and an internet connection. So if you have that, we can move forward. I want to talk as well a little bit about how you share your story. So far, all of the several interviews, I call them interviews because that's sort of how they've come out. I should say stories. All seven stories or several stories I've collected thus far have been kind of long form interviews, right? But that's not the only way you can do this. You can actually come on the show and read a written piece, you know, that you've wrote. You can read a poem. You can, again, do the long-form interview with me where we just talk back and forth. Um, You can sing a song. You can perform a song. You can do spoken word. You can do freestyle. You can perform a skit. Um, I don't have access to video equipment, and it's really not a video format right now. But if you can do it in audio, we can talk about it in that 10-minute phone call. So please don't be afraid to get creative or if you don't really want to have a long-form conversation with me, that's okay. You can come on and share a poem. You can you can share your story in whatever way feels meaningful for you. That's what this is about, okay? Next. The second piece of like feedback or commentary I'm getting a lot is, I don't know if my story's good enough. And I just want to tell you, if you feel like your story's not good enough, then you're exactly who should come on this podcast. Uh, That old quote, fear means go. I don't know who said it, but I saw it on a therapist's wall one time. Fear means go. I think that's a sign that maybe you should come on this podcast. Because again, I want to reiterate the kind of mission of this project is to humanize stories of trauma, humanize healing, what it looks like. So you may never know your story, which you maybe you're thinking, ah, it's not bad enough. I didn't go through enough. Uh, or I had this going for me. I had these protective factors. You never know because in all honesty, this is how we kind of shift perspectives and paradigms about what trauma can look like and what healing can look like. We need to really shift the conversation. So please come on the show and talk to me. Um, you know, 
there's obvious trauma, right, where it's visible or we've seen it or, you know, it's it's been talked about heavily. But then there's the not so obvious trauma. I'm talking about like working in any an emergency room, you know, and, and secondary trauma of just watching trauma. Um, I, you know, things like maybe you witnessed a lot of trauma growing up and you're thinking, yeah, but it didn't happen to me. I was just sort of there. That's still traumatic. And these are just sort of very, uh, you know, simple examples. I'm not, I'm not going to get too into this too much, but I'm just trying to let you know that you don't have to worry about your story being good enough to come on here. Your story is valid and important, and I think it needs to be on here. So if you're feeling up to it, please do come on and we'll talk about a way that, you know, you can feel really good about it. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. The recording process takes about an, a little over an hour in my experience. But again, that's with long form interviews. If you come on and read a poem and you absolutely, that's all you want to share, well, we can see how long it takes to read the poem and feel good about it. Um, again, it's all kind of talked about in that 10-minute phone call. So, yes. And um, I think that's about it. If you have any other questions for me, please email me at wearemagicpod at gmail.com again. I'll probably put this into a pretty formal post, but I figured while I have you here, since I do hear that comment quite often, I wanted to just clear that up and give you some information so that you can make an informed decision. Okay? Thank you so much for listening. Let's get into that introduction. So I have such a powerful and important story for you today. Today we have our next guest, Whitney, who's absolutely brilliant. She's so funny and she's going to come and share her story with us uh, about her experience with experiences with intimate partner violence and, you know, how that can affect the mind, the body and the spirit when you're really in the thick of it with someone you love. I just have to take a couple minutes because I do think this subject is so important and worthy of pausing to really reflect on it. Intimate partner violence is a subject that we could honestly do an entire series on. It's vast, it's pervasive, and unfortunately very common. I want to share some numbers with you just to kind of contextualize that. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner violence. And according to that same data, nearly every 20 minutes, someone's abused within an intimate relationship in the United States. And I know that data only speaks to the binary, but across the gender and sexuality spectrum, the numbers are still disturbingly equal, if not higher, for members of the LGBTQ community. Um, according to research conducted by the CDC, 44% of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner, compared to 35% of heterosexual women, and 26% of gay men and 37% of bisexual men experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner, compared to 29% of heterosexual men. Within the transgender community, the 2015 U.S. Transgender Study found 47% of transgender folks are sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. 47%. 
overwhelming amounts of data state that the rates of intimate partner violence are also disturbingly high for persons of color, particularly African-American women, whom, according to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, more than 40% of black women experience intimate partner violence in their lifetimes, compared to 31.5% of all women. So, which this is all to say that IPV, intimate partner violence, affects every single one of us, whether or not we've experienced it or it's someone we know who's experienced it. You know, and I believe that this is because IPV is not just a symptom of violence within two or multiple individuals, but a communal and societal issue. It's not just an issue that exists in the home or between two people. It exists on a communal and societal level. Many factors that contribute to violence begin and are perpetuated on a communal and societal level. You know, I'm thinking about how gender roles are enforced in our communities and are reflected back to us in our church sermons, our commercials, our romantic comedies, our music, right? And with that, I'm thinking of how we engage in or even sometimes sidestep discussions of sexual and physical violence in this country. Language matters, right? So when we think of phrases like, boys will be boys, that's just locker room talk. Or the now infamous grabber by the pussy, these all inherently minimize real and dangerous violence happening to people. And so as it occurs on that communal level, on that societal level, within the institutions we're in, um, in just the communities we're in, it traces all the way back down to folks on that individual level trying to navigate love in their partnerships. You know, violence in the community can lead to violence in the home and vice versa. It's all a cycle. And as we talk about IPV, I'm also just kind of thinking about how new this fight is and that, you know, serious legislative change in this country around domestic violence or intimate partner violence didn't start until recently. Um, I think according to my research, like, I would say the late 60s is when some serious work started happening. And you know, despite the legislative and policy change, the type of laws being passed still create huge barriers for true protections. From just how vast this beast is, it's really hard to pin down. And even with the laws, sorry, I know I'm getting very tangential here, but it's just, it's coming up for me. Even with all these laws, it takes enacting and enforcing those laws for people to actually be protected. You know, all you have to do is research the subject for a brief period to find probably several cases where a person did speak up, they did call the police, they did try, and they were met with barriers to getting actual protection or even being responded to in a way that was truly uh, creating safety in their life. I mean, of course, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is a case that got national attention. And uh, that's Nicole Brown with her 911 calls and how often, you know, she called the police and begged for safety. So 
you know, I, I'm just, I'm thinking about a lot, but I'm thinking about how these symptoms traverse back and forth from one level to another, from our organizations, our schools, to our places of employment, and then into our homes. And how, if we aren't careful, it becomes ingrained in the very culture of our families. And that begins a very insidious thread. I cannot tell you how often I have heard the following phrase. That's just how it was in our family. Right? Think about that. That's just how it was. And just think about what it took to where it became like that. This speaks kind of as well to attachment and intimate personal violence, which they're very connected. When we grow up with a caregiver who is our only source of safety, but is also our main source of danger, whether because they are abusive to us in some way or abusive to others and we're exposed to it, when in danger or in that situation, we may feel all at once very helpless and yet very normal. It becomes normal. I think about this pretty much every time I hear the often overused and very myopic rally of why didn't they just leave? Why didn't they just leave, you know, the relationship they could have left? We have to understand, and I think that's why this is also relevant, these intersections, we have to understand that this very topic goes bone marrow deep and is often woven into like the very fabric of our identities and our upbringings at times. It's very deep stuff. And it's not every time, of course. I, you know, I, I don't. Not everyone's experience is simply like this. I would never claim that this is how everyone experiences violence or intergenerational trauma or intimate personal violence, intimate partner violence, excuse me. But it is what I've been noticing, and I've seen it not only with others, but I've seen it in my very own families, right? My very own family. So I know that was a tangent, but I was just... I just was thinking about that as we think about the roots of violence and what change and navigating that can look like, right? It's very hard to visualize um, change for this problem because this problem cannot be resolved within a country that still heralds and astonishingly protects the beliefs of sexism and racism on an institutional level. So the changes in the conversations have to go deep because that's where the inherent root of the problem is. We have to change a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I know I went really deep there and uh, forgive me if, you, <laughs> if you're like, I just want to hear the episode, but I just, I don't know. I feel like this is so necessary to include when contextualizing all this, right? So, um... In this episode, we we also talk about the elusive way that abuse can present in a relationship, which again, I think is relevant to what I've been saying, but sometimes we cannot tell when someone we love is being abused. Sometimes we cannot tell when we ourselves are being abused. Sometimes we can't tell when we are the abuser or we're abusing ourselves, right? So um, it can be very elusive and insidious. And that's what I'm hoping this episode can bring up is uh, different perspectives on what violence can look like. Um, and I quickly wanted to introduce a tool that I have found to be very enlightening called the power and control wheel. The power and control wheel will be included in today's show notes, but um, the power and control wheel 
It was originally developed by, um, let's see, Domestic Violence Interventions Project in Duluth, Minnesota. Thank you. And has been adapted many times as the years goes on. But I'm saying there's many versions of it. But the one I'm looking at is produced by the National Center um, on Domestic and Sexual Violence. That's the one I'm going to include. It's essentially like a pie chart. And it breaks down all the different ways that abuse, well, not all many of the different ways that abuse can present in a relationship. And I think if you look at it, you may be able to understand the relevancy of what I've been saying, exploring the intersection between the macro and the micro when we're talking about violence in our homes and in our, in our relationships. So I think it may open up our ideas about what abuse can look like. So stay safe, keep yourself safe and check that out and let me know what you think. Okay. I'll step down from my soapbox now. Um, (laughs) Whitney is a brilliant storyteller and honestly she's going to breathe so much life into a lot of what I've talked about in a way that only she can I'm so honored so honored to have her on the show and I think you're gonna feel that way too once you get done with this episode just a quick note there are several points in the episode that can get intense and graphic right so we're talking about as usual on this show it's gonna get deep um So take care of yourselves and take breaks if needed. And also remember to practice regenerative self-care, right? Practice some self-care that brings you above zero, not just to zero. I'll go ahead and read the content warnings and we'll get right into the episode. Content warnings for this episode include depictions of physical, verbal, emotional, and sexual abuse, threats and intimidation, being held at gunpoint, manipulation, slander, and mentions of an eating disorder. I mean, just overall, like a a blanket disclosure for this episode that it's just a very intense one. So please listen with care and it will be here for you when you're ready for it. So thank you so much for listening. And without further ado, here's Whitney's story. All right, I'm recording. Great. Awesome. Great. I know. I'm so excited. I'm really excited to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. I appreciate you for, (laughs) to be quite honest, helping me figure out some podcasting information. I'm quite new to this, so just (laughs) learning. Well, me too. You know, it's, it's like overwhelming when you first get started, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So I like to kind of start off by asking you, the guest, to just set an intention with me or kind of talk about uh, an intention you have for the episode or something you want to use to open the the space that we're going to use to tell your story. I appreciate that. I think, you know, my main intention in doing this is that I would like to try and help somebody out there, even if it's just one person who might be in a similar situation to the one that I was in 20 plus years ago, as odd Mm. as it sounds to be talking about something that happened so long ago. And that's why I want to do this, really, to just hopefully reach out and touch somebody. Exactly. And even the the short conversation we've had about your story, I definitely think that's going to happen. I hope so. Thank you. Yeah, because your story is very powerful. And how should we start? Should we start at the beginning? Should we start, is there a particular part of the story you'd like to tell? Or how should we set set up the story? 
Well, I, I didn't do a whole lot of preparation because I find that when I do a whole lot of preparation, I tend to go off script anyway. <laughs> but yeah. I do have a few things that I, I guess are the most important things that I would like to try to communicate. Mm-hmm. So maybe rather than telling the story from beginning to end, which would probably take more time than we've got because it was a three-year <laughs> relationship, um, I think there are a few kind of take-home messages that I want to to get across. And so maybe we could sort of go down the list and then I could maybe tell you some stories. You know, I call them his greatest hits that maybe <laughs> illustrate... It's dark and morbid, but... (laughs) It is, yeah. Well, you have to laugh to keep from crying sometimes, and then sometimes you cry anyway. Absolutely. So let's do it. Let's... So you have a list, like a physical list in front of you, or... I do, actually, yeah. (laughs) You came prepared in your beautiful red dress. I just... I want to set the visual, too, that Whitney (laughs) has got this amazing, like, vixen red hair and dress on, and, like, she's ready. (laughs) She's come forth, ready to to tell her story. I love it. Yes, and that is because the day or the night, I should say, that I finally left this man who had caused me so much grief for three years, I put on a red dress for courage because it always makes me feel empowered to get kind of vamped up. So I had Mm. red lipstick on and a red dress on and fancy makeup, and some people might feel completely differently and use a totally different set of tools to feel (laughs) empowered, but that was what did it for me. So I thought, tonight I'm going to put on a red dress. I love it. The first thing for me that I would like to try to explore is the idea that I think a lot of people that experience abuse, the kind of abuse that I experienced, which was, although there was physical abuse in there, for sure, it was mostly mental and emotional and sexual and financial. And the physical part was really the the least of it, although it was very traumatic. I think a lot of people whose experience of abuse is like that have almost what I would call an imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. either while they're in it or after they get out of it, or both, where they feel like, if I'm not getting beaten up on a regular basis, it's not abuse. And I think that's really insidious, because I know for me, that was part of what kept me in this for so long, that I was able to talk myself out of really understanding what was going on, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And I think you speak to something that's so prevalent and not talked about enough, this idea that abuse does not always present in the core traditional way we would assume it does. I mean, if you look at the power and control wheel, um, which it's it's kind of sort of part of the handbook when you're learning about domestic violence, you'll see that power and control and abuse essentially can happen in so many ways from financial, financial control to isolating to emotional abuse to using children as a weapon i mean just abuse and harm come in so many ways so i think it's important for you to speak to your story and and sort of what that looked like for you because that might be that might be sort of what someone else out there needs to hear absolutely and and that's what i want to do i think that you know for me it was a big part of of how i got myself into this mess and why i stayed in it for as long as i did was because My abuser, he had had a really difficult childhood. He was gang-raped as a child when he was seven years old by teenage cousins. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. I mean, that's heavy stuff. And he had experienced abuse from his parents, his father in particular. He watched his father beat on his mother, and his father was a, was a spouse abuser physically and emotionally. He had had a really rough time of it. And I think that I understood early on that he was a damaged person. And I think I thought that allowing him to use me as his punching bag emotionally psychologically, sexually, and as I said, there, there did eventually um, come some physical abuse as well, though it was never hitting per se. It was more just kind of roughing me up and holding me down and things like that, not letting me leave, spitting on me, things like that. But mostly it was emotional and psychological and, and sexual. I think I thought if I let him take all this out on me, it will show him that I love him, that I'm not going anywhere, that I'm not going to betray him like everybody else in his life has, that eventually he's going to see that I'm really committed to him. And somehow I convinced myself that allowing him to treat me this way was helping him. Mm. And, oh my God, is that so wrongheaded. And I realize that now that allowing someone to take out their frustration on you, their anger, their personal trauma, not only do you not get a medal for that, and you don't get a martyrdom for that, and you don't get recognition for that, all you get for that is abused and damaged, but it also doesn't help them in any way, shape, or form. And I'm sure you as a mental health professional, you know that. It's not going to help him, right? to let him treat me that way. That's not going to help him heal his trauma. No, I definitely wouldn't. I wouldn't say as such, no. It's, um... The path to healing for anyone is just very complex and nuanced, and I think more importantly than that, it's incredibly dangerous and can be for the person who is... It sounds kind of like you're trying to, it, it sounds like you were kind of trying, in a sense, to provide love for him that maybe he didn't experience, a corrective experience, almost. Yeah, definitely. I just thought, I'm not going to quit on him. I'm going to show him I'm not going to quit on him. And, and it just got warped in my head that this was showing him love, that I was willing to take all this punishment from him and let him take out all of this rage that he had on me. And to, you know, what I've realized since is that not only did this do me a lot of harm, but mm. I think it did him harm because it enabled him to not deal with the underlying issues that were making him behave this way in the first place. So not only did it damage my personal truth, that, and that damage took years and years to, to heal, but I think it also enabled him to not get help that would actually be helpful. Exactly. It was bad. And, and you, like I said, you don't get a medal for that. You're not going to get a martyrdom. You're not going to get a gold star. And that's not love. You know, that is not love. And also, you know, another insidious thing was, you know, I was, and I should say, I was very young when I got mm -hmm. involved with this guy. I'm 41 now. This relationship started when I was 17 and lasted until I was 20. So we're talking about, you know, a lot of years in the past. This is 20 plus years ago, and it's still resonating. I mean, that tells you right there how urgent it is, in my opinion, to get out of an abusive situation. Because I'm married to the best guy in the world now. I couldn't be in a happier, healthier relationship. Thank God, you know. Mm -hmm. But 
even so, you know, and especially just in recent years, I don't know what it was that kicked this off. I feel like maybe it's the Me Too movement and, like, the thing with Brett Kavanaugh and, like, all of that stuff coming up has stirred up a lot of this stuff for me that I thought I had completely dealt with. And then recently it's just started kind of popping its ugly little head up again. But, you know, I just want to make sure people understand, like, great love, you know, a great love does not mean that you have to have dizzying highs and abysmal lows. And that's what I thought, you know, when I was 17, 18, 19, I thought one of the ways I justified, like, staying in that relationship and allowing him to treat me the way that he did was, well, we have a great passion. We have a great love story. Of course, it's going to be dramatic and you know, love is like this. It's like a thunderclap, you know, it's not like a spring rain. And wow, you know, now I look back on that and I just think, oh my God, honey, no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said something so powerful, which I think this is not love. And people often will mistake passion, you know, like really, really like what you're saying, dizzying highs and the lowest lows. And, and that doesn't have to be love. That doesn't have to be the relationship you have or the story you have with your partner. And, and that is, I think that's really hard for a lot of, for a lot of folks to kind of navigate because, well, first of all, we don't have great examples of healthy love fed to us or, you know, kind of coming down. And I'm sure you can attest to, I'm not sure what kind of messaging was happening in your family growing up about what love was. Well, there wasn't any any what I would call abuse between my parents, but they did fight a lot, and they mm-hmm. were, and are. I mean, they're still together. They're a few years away from their 50th wedding anniversary, and, you know, I know they love each other very much, and they have a very deep, you know, connection to each other. They grew up next door to each other. They've literally known each other their entire lives since babyhood. <laughs> they were high school sweethearts, you know, but they definitely are, they're not compatible people at all. And so there was a lot of fighting, and I, I would say, and I'm being brutally honest here because I know they're never going to hear this most likely <laughs> because I'm not going to tell them about it, but they definitely did not model what I would call a healthy relationship. So it wasn't that I grew up watching my dad hit my mom or anything like that, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a healthy relationship modeled for me, no, definitely not. Absolutely, yeah, no, and it doesn't always, you know, have to be uh, as as intense as viewing uh, any sort of abuse or physical abuse or emotional as you grow up, but sort of there can be subtle ways that parents model what showing compassion, how they communicate, how they respect or do not respect each other. And children are so perceptive and they form these, they form their own ways of surviving in this world based on kind of what they're seeing modeled for them. And then you kind of mix that with, um, I'm getting on a soapbox here, I guess, but you kind of mix that with the messaging in quote unquote romantic comedies or just that's kind of presented in the media. And we're not really fed a lot of healthy messages about love or what actual robust, healthy love can look like. I completely agree. I think that that's, Mm -hmm. we have a real impoverished view of that in our culture, unfortunately. And a lot of people, like you say, grow up seeing that face-to-face and up close and personal in their own families as well. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think that I was in in some ways primed for this. And and it's interesting because my sibling has also had one abusive relationship after another where they were the 
abused party. So mm. both of us have had abusive relationships. And I think that one reason for that is that one of our parents had an untreated bipolar two diagnosis that was untreated for most of our childhood and would occasionally say things that they absolutely did not mean. And we knew that they didn't mean them. And so we kind of got used to occasionally having some verbal abuse thrown at us. And we knew that this was just this person blowing off steam. But what we didn't understand, I think, is that some people, when they say those things, they do mean them. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it actually is headed somewhere really bad. Because they're not your parent and they don't really care about you and they don't have your best interests at heart. So, you know, when I got involved with a guy who started, well, especially when he would drink, that was when I was in the danger zone, you know, he would really get genuinely nasty. And I was able to lie to myself and think, oh, you know, he's just blowing off steam. He doesn't really mean it. Because I had been primed for that in childhood. Like, this isn't the authentic self. Almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Who Who is this, whoever, you know, um, I've heard of the saying, um, I'm in love with the person, not the behavior. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's so hard because it's true. And oftentimes, sure. uh, you know, there's, I don't really believe in a single story, um, you know, as, you know, or this idea that there's just one type of person who perpetuates abuse. I mean, I'm sure that it's, it's hard. You do love the person. And Mm -hmm. the behaviors are these things. It's just like, I just wish they would go away. Or maybe if I, if I just kind of fudged a little bit of this and like changed this and got all these variables into place, it would be this perfect recipe for when they would feel love, like you were saying, or they would not have to react this way. Maybe if I said, I don't know if this is aligning or (laughs) with anything you're saying. No, it does. I mean, I think that goes back to what I was saying that, you know, I thought I was going to fix him. I really did. And and what I mm-hmm. finally had to realize is that you can't fix someone. I mean, you know, you can't love this out mm-hmm. of them. And the fact is that he was and probably still is a very damaged person. And mm-hmm. he came by that. Honestly, he had had serious trauma in his past. And that trauma was not his fault. But what he did to me was and was not okay. And he made a decision. He made a choice to take that stuff out on me instead of finding healthy ways of dealing with that instead of seeking help the right way he just chose to use me as his punching bag mentally emotionally sexually financially you know so he you know and and then he and the thing that really gets me is he would drink knowing full well what happened to him when he drank and like i said i got to the point where i would just get nauseated when i would see him come through the door with booze Mm. Of any kind, it, it would just, my heart would just sink because I knew without a doubt, if he got beyond a certain level of intoxication, I was in trouble. And it would be an entire night. I mean, literally sometimes hours and hours and hours of him chasing me around the apartment, getting me up against a wall with his gross vodka breath in my face, making me say things like, I'm a whore, you know just awful stuff. And he was always convinced I was cheating on him. I never cheated on him once that there were always accusations and he would make me say that again and again and again. And he'd hold Mm -hmm. me up against the wall until I said it. And it was just dreadful. He would spit in my face, 
tell me just horrible things, and he threatened violence quite a bit. I remember one time I threw him a Christmas party because Christmas was hard for him mm-hmm. because of family stuff. So he would get really depressed around the holidays, as many people do. And I thought, I'm going to make this Christmas really special. We're going to make our own traditions so that he doesn't associate Christmas with this awful family stuff. So I went to so much trouble. I got a tree. I mean, I'm all of 18, 19 years old at this point. And I went out and spent, like, the you know money I didn't have on decorations. And I got catering from Boston Market. I remember that. And invited all his friends, and many of whom I did not like, but I had them over anyway, and presents, and the whole thing, got dressed up, and right before the first guest came through the door, I had this beautiful meal laid out, and Christmas lights, and Christmas music, and it was so nice, you know? And even if it wasn't what he wanted, I mean, I did it for him. You would think somebody would realize that at the very least, you'd made an effort to try to make them feel good, and that would mean something to them. And instead, he he took a martial arts classes and he was always like practicing his moves and he would do this thing where he would do this like kung fu punch where his fist would just stop an inch from my face you know like miming punching me he did this all the time it was bizarre and he did that and he said dead serious looking right in my eyes he said one of these days i'm gonna beat the living shit out of you just because you don't think i can i was just staggering like what are you talking about? Like, I just made this party for you. And total nightmare. And it was like 30 seconds later that the door went and somebody, you know, one of his friends was at the door and he was able to just snap right out of it and go answer the door and greet his friend. It was just, it was bizarre. It was just a bizarre thing to say, but that was very typical of him. It's so unsettling, just the shift, the kind of shift that someone can make to going from saying something like that to kind of sh- shifting into party mode. Like, yeah, it was bizarre. And he, could, he couldn't always do that. It really it depended on his mood and on how drunk he was. Other people definitely did get to see the beast sometimes. And, you know, and, and despite that, bizarrely, I lost some friends after I finally left him because they took his side, even a couple of people who had witnessed some of the, uh, I mean, no one witnessed the full extent of it, but that was, you know, and that's the thing. He's, he was very charming Mm. and he could, he could draw people into his orbit. And of course he immediately, as soon as I left him, started spreading these absurd rumors that I was dating an ex-con, which is just hilarious like where did you come up with that and that i had slashed his tires or somebody's tires got slashed i forget making up lies oh and oh my god that reminds me of a story i hadn't even intended to tell you but this is bananas and it illustrates the kind of mind games that abusers can play there was one summer where we were on a break and he had broken up with me at that point i forget why but we were on a we were on a break for a couple of months before he begged me to come back to him, and I made the mistake of going back, and he invited me over one night, and I thought we were going to talk about possibly getting back together, so I went over to his apartment, and, you know, he sat me down on the couch, and I kept trying to steer the conversation to what I thought we were going to talk about, which was maybe reconciling, and he just kept steering the conversation toward mutual friends, and it seemed like he was trying to get me to say bad things about mutual friends, and he was trying to get me to say that I thought this one guy in our group of friends was attractive, and this guy had a girlfriend who was a friend of mine, and I just, it was bizarre, so finally I just got fed up and said, I'm leaving if you don't want to talk about, you know, if this is what you want to talk about, I'm leaving. I found out the next day from a mutual friend 
that he had taped a, a voice recorder what? to the back of the couch. Yes. And had turned it on right before I got there and had recorded our entire conversation because he was going to try to get me to badmouth our friends so that he could play them the tape. And I assume just get them to start hating me or something. Absolutely I, bizarre behavior. It's so bizarre. It's but bizarre is, and just kind of yeah malicious. Very malicious. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, he he was just full of that kind of stuff. Like, oh, I hate even thinking about this. But one of the greatest hits that I mentioned earlier was he wrote. He was a prolific writer, and he was an excellent writer. He's very creative. He was an you know an actor and a writer and a you know an artist on multiple levels that was one of the things that attracted me to him in the first place as we were in um, plays together and he wrote at one point this document I guess you'd call it entitled 100 reasons why I hate my girlfriend and it was 100 reasons why he hated me and as if that wasn't bad enough he actually made copies of this thing and distributed them at a wedding reception to a bunch of mutual friends. At a wedding reception. Like, number one, that is massively inappropriate. Like, why do you think these poor people at this wedding reception and the poor bride and groom, like, this is supposed to be their day, and you're passing around this despicable treatise that you've written about me and all my flaws, and and you would think if you had never seen me reading this thing that I was the most hideous creature to ever crawl out of a swamp you know, the way he described me. And I remember one of the things on the list was her fat ass crushes my balls when we have sex. And it was literally the next day, because of course I found out about this, and of course somebody showed it to me. And it was literally the next day that I stopped eating, and it kicked off a year and a half of an eating disorder. I was just about to say, I can't even, I mean, first of all, yeah, absolutely inappropriate, completely. Like, who does that, ludic- right? Ludicrous to even think that that's a thing you you should do, that those, <laughs> that, that anyone would want to read that, or, or that that's a, that's, that's a, there's no kindness there, there's, there, oh, I, God, no. I just, no. I think, like, what's the motivation? I just think, like, would this, because, you, you know, sometimes your, your behaviors are, are motivated by something, like, yes. I want this outcome. Right. But to just straight up try to tarnish someone to a group of people, besides just being a, a fucking dick, like, I can't just, <laughs> yes, you know, like, that. was he expecting people to stand up and say, thank you, this is for the people. <laughs> That's and then the just thing to that body shame you and to shame know. you in so many ways. Yeah, like, I can't even imagine, I don't know, I'm probably thinking too much about it. he just sounds like a, a real fucking prick, but, oh, yes. um, I can't even imagine, and I was gonna say, I can't even imagine what that would do to the psyche, your psyche, your your yeah. self-image you know just to know that this was distributed to everyone i yeah that was I, the worst I, part was that he showed it around i mean if he had just written it and i would found it in his journal or something like that that would be one thing but oh boy still the fact that people had seen it it was just humiliating and i mean it was just yeah. like a punch in the stomach and i'm so i'm, I'm curious though how so let's kind of talk about if you're okay with shifting it a little bit sure. to sort of how this began and how right. did this did this start happening? Was it kind of all at once? Was it a buildup? Where you know what were you what were you noticing in the beginning that maybe you were like hmm what's going on here? It was a buildup. The mm-hmm. first year of our relationship was okay. Um, the very beginning was fantastic. 
I mean, he was, when I met him, he was very handsome. He had kind of a Russell Crowe slash Hugh Jackman thing going on. Nice. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he eventually let himself go significantly and, like, literally, like, stopped showering and stuff. And so the physical attractiveness definitely went out the window. But he was very handsome when we first met and mm-hmm. took care of himself, would always have, he had beautiful, long rock star hair and he'd wear cologne and, you know, beautiful personal grooming and, like, stuff like that. So we had a great time together. We, he was funny and really dynamic. He was always, he had this very compact body and he was always kind of springing around and he's one of the only guys I've ever met that could do the splits. And he would do the splits. Like he would just be hanging out and he'd just suddenly do the splits. He's just very dynamic, bright, like mm-hmm. person. You know, he had this very just bright personality at first. And I just thought he was amazing. And he was very romantic at first and very complimentary and, oh, man. And so it was great at first. And then I think it was when I started spending a lot of time at his apartment. Because when we started dating, I was still in high school. And he was in college. He was four years older than I was. And we actually met when I was a freshman in high school and he was a senior, and this is insane. The way that, so we dated twice. We dated for most of my freshman year when he was a senior, and then we didn't see each other for another couple of years, and then when I was a junior and he was in college, he showed up at my doorstep one day, and it was like blast from the past, ex-boyfriend, and that was when we started seriously dating and when all this started. But the way that he got my attention when I was a freshman was apparently, we didn't have any classes together, obviously, because we were you know, four years apart. But he apparently had seen me around and we were both in the drama club. We'd never spoken. But he started leaving these poems in my locker. And I remember he called me the moonless night because I had dark, I didn't have red hair then. I had like dark, almost black hair. And of course I'm vampire pale. So his name (laughs) for me was the moonless night. It's so hokey now, but when you're a freshman in high school and people start leaving you poems in your locker about how you're like a moonless night, that gets your attention. It's when you're definitely, 14. it's very poignant <laughs> and, I mean, it would definitely get your attention, absolutely. Oh, it definitely got my attention. And it, it was sort of terrifying, but also really intriguing. And so eventually he came and talked to me and, you know, we went out for that freshman year. But then, as I said, he went back to his ex-girlfriend at the end of that year. I started dating somebody else and then it wasn't until my junior year when I was 17 and he was 21 that he showed back up. And... I think where it really started to go downhill, while I was still a junior and he was in college, our relationship went great. It was when I, I actually skipped my senior year of college because I had already taken almost all the credits I needed to graduate and I was just spinning my wheels. So I I skipped Mm -hmm. my senior year, went to college early, and I went to the same college where he was, which was, I realize now, a dumbass move because I was going to have a scholarship to go to a much better school, but of course... My boyfriend is there, so I have to go and be with him, right? That's how you think when you're 17. So you want that connection, you know? You want to kind of be there all the time. Absolutely. And, you know, mm-hmm. I know you know, number one tool of an abuser is isolation. And so as soon as I got there, he immediately started trying to convince me that I shouldn't be sleeping in my dorm at night. I should be staying with him at his apartment. So I started spending less and less time on campus, less and less time in my dorm room. Yeah, and I mean, I had my dorm room, but it was basically just like a a walk-in closet. And my poor roommate hardly ever saw me by, you know, by the middle of the first year of college. He had me living with him, essentially, which my parents would have died if they knew. Hmm. But, you know, 
I was staying with him all the time. And I think once he had me away from everybody and once we were starting to get familiar with each other and the novelty started to wear off and he was also having trouble in school. So he was going through a lot of stress. He was doing a, um, a work type internship and studying chemical engineering, which is really hard stuff going through a lot of stress and he didn't do well with stress. So he started drinking more. And then that's when the beast started to come out and it, it didn't, it didn't just hit boom. All of a sudden it was little stuff. The verbal abuse started to kick up and the sexual stuff. I mean, he was my first time, which kills me to say, I wish he wasn't, but he was, and he was into a lot of stuff that, you know, I mean, I had just had sex for the first time and he pushed me into a lot of stuff I was not ready for. Oh. And I'd had a real sheltered childhood, you know? I had never even heard of kink, you know, mm-hmm. any of that stuff. And I have certainly have no problem with that if that's what you enjoy, as long as it's safe and consensual. Amen. Go, go for it, you know? But it wasn't something that I was ready for at that age mm-hmm. and at that it stage of my sexual like, development. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you were... Uh, at, at certain points you're saying I, I didn't feel ready or things like that I, I can't even imagine because it yeah kink and BDSM and, and, and those kind of things can be extremely healing for for people oh, sure. to, to yeah. explore but when it's not consensual or it's not there's when it's kind of coerced that it, you know any any sort of sexual act actually can be kind of a breeding ground for just dangerous stuff like that but yeah because I think you yeah. you have to on some level make yourself vulnerable to be involved with someone sexually and especially because he was my first and he was sort of teaching me and leading me into, you know, the sexual realm or whatever. And he had a really serious, um, porn addiction. And I didn't realize that at first, but by the time we broke up, I realized that he was running up a thousand dollars in phone sex bills. This was back in the nineties. So, you know, this was pre-internet and um yeah i know i'm i'm old <laughs> no no i'm just i'm i'm no i'm sorry i was immediately just thinking of when i was a kid in the 90s those commercials with the girls they'd yeah. be like call me call <laughs> exactly. now like this 1-800 number which i mean not to shame them at all you know it's oh, sex no, work sure. is honest work but, those commercials but I, are hilarious i mean it's absolutely i remember that's kind of what came up for me i'm like oh you're right this was before internet made porn yeah. just completely accessible exactly so mm-hmm. he had a lot of magazines and a lot of vhs tapes and and just an ex- exorbitant amount of money he went into huge debt for phone sex and i mean it was a problem it was maladaptive for him it was a way of putting a band-aid on his emotional problems just like the drinking was and and so he you know and again i i don't i certainly don't judge anyone who enjoys porn but he would he would put porn on every time we would have sex and he would just look at the screen or he would even have magazines open on the bed. And I just felt like a blow up doll. Like that's all I was, was just a sex toy. And that is really damaging to your self worth. I mean, and and then add to that the fact that it went from him telling me I was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen to saying, you know, that I was not as hot as the girls in the magazines and that I, you know, my stomach pooched out and my boobs were saggy and I was too pale and I was this and I was that. And, you know, I, I still, I've genuinely blocked out most of what he wrote on that list, but 
Like, I genuinely can't even remember most of it. The only thing I actually remember is that thing about my f supposedly fat ass. And honestly, at the time, like, I would love to have that body back now, you know? At 41, looking back at that, like, 18, 19-year-old bod that I had. Like, what planet was he on? I was hot, man. But see, the thing is, even he later on, after I broke up with him, he called me drunk one night about two weeks after I dumped him, trying to get me to come back to him. And he actually told me, you know, the reason I said all that stuff to you is because I wanted you to feel bad about yourself so that you wouldn't leave me. He just came right out and admitted it, which shocked me that he had that degree of self-insight about it. It's so and it, unsettling. Right? I mean, <laughs> it did it on, like, calculated... That was a calculated move. And I really want young women and young men and everybody in between who's listening right now that if a partner is making you feel bad about your looks, there is a damn good chance that's why. Because it's they want to drag you down. So they, don't want, they want you to feel good about yourself because if you feel good about yourself, you won't realize hey, I'm in a really unhealthy, toxic situation and I'm going to get out of there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a really insidious form of manipulation. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And yeah, so the sexual stuff was horrible. I can't even stand still to think about our sex life. It was horrible. So horrible. There was a lot of coerced stuff where it was just like wheedling and guilt tripping and you know, making me feel like I was a prude if I didn't try certain things, some of which were just, to my sexual preferences, genuinely just objectionable things, <laughs> which, again, not here to kink shame anybody. I'm not going to be specific. But for me at that time, as a 17, 18-year-old girl who had never had another partner, some of the things that I was pressured into doing were traumatic at the time. And there was one incidence where it was an outright assault. <sighs> and just to share where your, where your head can get when you're in an abusive relationship, that it took me probably a year after I left him to realize that that's what it was. That mm -hmm. somebody that you have had consensual sex with and someone that was your partner could actually sexually assault you. It took me like almost a year afterward. And I was telling somebody about it, and he said, he, he raped you. Like, do you understand that? And I hadn't until that moment. And then it just hit me like a bucket of ice water that, yeah, he sure did. Because I said no about a hundred times and was, like, trying to fight him off. And, yeah, like, that's pretty clear cut. It's clear so, cut. Yeah, I, I mean, it really is. And, and, and that, but that just, I think, is so instructive as to where your mind can, can go and what kind of headspace you can be in that you wouldn't see that at the time. Is there, was there a particular, you know, moment where you were like, okay, I've got to, I've got to do something. Or I know that must have taken quite a long time. Um, well, you know, if only because you had kind of brought up this idea that you were like, I felt like if I could just love him enough, the behaviors mm -hmm. would change. When did that shift into well, almost like acceptance that, or, you know, actually you define that. You tell me what happened. <laughs> yeah, um, well, here's another thing, too, that I think is important. 
I wanted out of there. The really bad part was about two years of the relationship. As I said, the first year was fine. Then in year two, it started ramping up. And there was probably a year and a half of just pretty much pure unmitigated hell of just almost constant verbal and emotional abuse and just tearing me down as much as he could and just all that sex stuff I was telling you about. So I wanted out and I, I wanted out desperately and I have my journal still from that time and just it's just full of I've got to get out of this. This is so bad for me. But and I mean I was anorexic for a lot of the time after that ridiculous list that he made and I got down to I was I probably went from 145 pounds to 98 pounds or something like that in the span of like a few months and the only feedback I ever got from him was how great I looked. And I remember him saying, you're almost perfect now. I couldn't ask for anything more physically. You're almost perfect now. Oh, thank you, asshole. I'm dying inside. I fainted on stage yesterday at a, at a rehearsal, but I'm so glad I'm almost perfect for you now, you know. And, you know, he, went, one of the times we were on a break, he had slept with this girl, and he never tired of telling me how much hotter than I she was and how she looked like the girls on Baywatch. Again, I'm dating myself. And it just, it just got to a point finally where for a while I wanted out so badly, but it was like, I could, I, I couldn't see a way. It was like, I felt like our lives were so intertwined and he had done such an effective job of isolating me where he would straight up forbid me to see my best friends Mm. straight up forbid me. And it just got to the point where it wasn't worth the fight to try to reach out to people that I knew were, were a support system. Abusers do not want you to have a support system. And I f- it was like, for a while, I wanted out, but I might as well want to be Princess of Lollipop Land. And I think when it changed was, number one, I secretly got back in touch with my best girlfriend and just started, and, and this was because, again, I'm old, we started, we got campus email. Hmm. And so I could reach out to her in a way that he couldn't know about because I would go to the computer lab between classes and start, and we started emailing each other. And that started because I bumped into her at the mall. And when she saw me, she burst into tears because I'd lost so much weight and I looked so bad. And she dragged me into a fitting room. She said, what is going on? What is wrong? What happened to you? And it had only been a few months since we'd seen each other. And she said, what the hell happened? And that kind of woke me up a little bit. And then we started emailing, and she was encouraging me to get out, obviously. And then the big thing happened, which was that one night um, he was drinking, and we were watching, I think it was Braveheart, funnily enough, on the VCR. And movies were always a danger zone, because if there was anything about a relationship in the movies... Like, if there was anything about a relationship, either a bad relationship or a really good relationship, he'd find something in it to twist around to how I was doing him wrong or how I was so, you know, such a piss-poor partner and he deserved so much better. And I don't know, he was... He was a nightmare. So we were watching Braveheart and like there's this big sweeping love story in there and he was just drinking and I knew it was going to be bad, man. I could feel it coming a mile away. You get this radar that just starts vibrating and and I still have it. I can sense somebody's stress levels from this relationship and I think from growing up with a bipolar parent as well that you get this, these really finely tuned antennae where you can sense people's moods. A mm-hmm. mile off. I still have it. 20 plus years later, I can still tell if somebody's getting stressed out or upset. 
and you I become start to cl- empathic almost like you yeah totally right mm-hmm. exactly and and you start the climate control of trying to calm things down and I was an expert at that with him like managing his environment to try to keep the explosions to a minimum and keep myself safe but this night I could tell nothing was going to calm things down he was getting more and more worked up as this movie went along and I finally just tried to kind of get out of the situation by saying I was tired and I wanted to go to bed. And he grabbed my arm and wouldn't let, he was a big fan of not letting me leave. He'd sit on me if he had to. And he grabbed my arm and held me down. And on the table next to the couch, he kept this little twenty-two gun, handgun. And he was into guns. I knew it was loaded. It was always loaded. And... He grabbed this gun, and he put it to my temple. And he started arguing with himself about whether to kill me and kill himself. And there had never been anything that intense. Like, I mean, we we had some very intense moments, don't get me wrong, verbally of him saying just the most awful things you can imagine. And like I said, spitting on me and holding me against the wall and stuff, but it it had never gotten to a point where I had genuinely thought he might kill me. And I know, because I've heard so many stories since, that that happens quite a bit, as a matter of fact, where a relationship that's been psychological abuse, emotional abuse, up to a point, the first time they get aggressive will be the day that they murder their partner. And, I mean, that happens, and I'm a true crime buff going way back, so I've heard hundreds, I mean, so many cases like that. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know how long we sat there. I have no way of knowing, because when you're terrified, time gets weird. But he was real drunk, and he was very unpredictable when he was drunk, and he just sat there, and he was just arguing out loud about whether to just shoot me in the head and then shoot himself and end it all for both of us. And I just kind of tried to stay calm and talk him down. And then finally I realized that I was only agitating him, so I just stayed completely quiet and just sat there and wondered if I was going to die. And fortunately I didn't. But yeah, it was after that, (laughs) unsurprisingly, that I realized, okay, I got to get out of this immediately. And then finally after I did his best friend told me that he was so relieved because he had thought that the way that my ex had talked about me sometimes, that he was going to read about us in the paper, that it was going to be a murder-suicide. And I don't think he knew about the gun incident, which my ex claimed he didn't remember the next day. He would always say he didn't remember. He was the king of gaslighting. It's unbelievable. That's... Yeah. I mean, I've, I... I have the chills hearing your story. I I can't even imagine what that must have been like. And I'm so glad that you left. I'm so yeah, glad that too. you And it was right around Christmas. And I remember like sitting in my parents' house, like looking at the Christmas tree and just thinking, man, I have got to get out of this. And, you know, once you talked about setting an intention, I think once like that intention like really formed in my head, it was like, okay, we're done. And I had a friend who was a police officer at the time. He's an attorney now. We're still good friends. And he was one of the few people that actually dumped this guy as a friend when he realized how he had been treating me and stuff. And we're still friends. We, we were in each other's wedding. And, you know, and he was a cop at the time. 
before he went to law school, and I asked him to be there that night. And so he sat on my couch the entire time, and it was explosive. I mean, my ex punched through my bathroom mirror, and he was a big hole-in-the-wall puncher, you know. And he punched through my mirror, and glass went everywhere. He was bleeding all over my floor. And I remember I had bought him a white sweater for Christmas, and I picked up the white sweater, and I held it under his hand, and I said, stop bleeding on my carpet and get out of my house. Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, That's, my friend was, was yeah. sitting on the couch, and he had his handcuffs, like, just prominently on his knee, like, go right ahead and try something. So it was pretty dramatic. That must have been so... I can't even imagine how scary that must have been to to walk in there. I'm not sure how it went down or whatever, but, like, to walk in there and to say, like, okay, like, what... Just that moment where everything changed and you kind of said it and you spoke into existence, like, this is going to end, you need to leave. And yeah. then knowing full well, I mean, considering the history of his behavior, how mm -hmm. he was going to most likely react. I can't... It, the level of risk and danger that people who are leaving abusive relationships experience is is exponentially i don't have the number um on hand i want to say it's like there's a 70% chance of some like something occurring like it's just it's a very dangerous time when it is the, it's the most dangerous time when the person who yeah when the person is kind of fleeing the relationship mm -hmm. and i don't know if that number's correct it's been a long time since i've looked at those numbers but i do know that i'm glad that you thought ahead to have someone there to support you yeah and i was just lucky that i had a, a friend who actually had the capability to arrest him if he tried anything but, and I had a female friend there as well. My best girlfriend was there too. And she said later that she said it was like you were in there with a dragon because he did not go quietly. He was screaming at me. He called me a sick bitch. Because as I said, he was, he liked to gaslight and he would say, you know, he always managed to twist everything around to where it was my fault and I was the one in the wrong. And I saw a meme earlier and I think it's, it was so good. It was, um, that abusers have this way of making your anger seem worse than their abuse that, you know, if you try to call them on their crap, that you're hysterical, and you should be more forgiving, and, you know, and especially if they've endured trauma, because that's what he would always say. He's like, you know what my childhood was like. Yeah, yeah, I do, and that would get me every time, you know? And it's, it's, it's like, yes, but that's still not a reason to treat someone this way, that there's no, experiencing trauma as a child is awful i know um but that still doesn't give anyone some cloak of immunity to where they can perpetuate the harm that they have caused somebody and yeah it's it's Absolutely. complex shit man but it's it's something that you know you have to you have to own they you know what ha i don't know i think will smith says what happens to you or what does he say he's like what happened to you was not your fault but your healing is Mm -hmm. he made it's your responsibility, definitely. It's your responsibility to heal, and it was his responsibility. It was not your responsibility to fix him or to love him enough to where he felt, or to where he he took better care of himself or found healthier coping skills and things like that. But it's and it's also tough. way above my pay grade. I was a teenage girl. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's above anyone's pay grade, right? It's like, yeah, I know you were you were a child essentially. You were still figuring out your identity. And 
Yeah, and he was four yeah. years older than I was, which at that time of life is a big deal. It's a very big deal. So that's a huge. That's a huge chunk for t- seventeen to twenty-one. A lot happens in those years. A lot, absolutely. So. And it, and so you know, we I finally got him out of my life, and and he created this fiction in his head that I had been cheating on him, and that's what he told himself, and that's what he spread around. And like I said, I lost friends over it, which was really shocking to me. People that I genuinely thought cared about me, but. There's not one thing I would change. I mean, obviously, it was it was essential that I get out of there before something really bad happened. Yeah, and I think this was also around... This is pre-internet. Well, pre-like... Pre-internet. Like, pre-social yeah, I mean, media. It existed, so, but it, it wasn't pre- like a daily part of everybody's life. Exactly. So, word of mouth was a huge thing. So, mm-hmm. it's Absolutely. like... It's not like you could have someone could have got on Facebook and, you know, disseminated this information, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I think made, about that often. I think about, <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I just think about how the role of social media in terms of, like, breakups and, and sort of, like, all all they all they had was word of mouth. There was no kind of, that, that connection through social media wasn't there. And so, I think yeah, it's just thank God, different. because God only knows what he would have done on social media. I mean, it would have been <laughs> much worse, I'm sure. <laughs> Good God, if he'd had he Instagram and Facebook to spread rumors about me with. God a plus knows. asshole, that's what he is. And so he would have used Facebook in a terrible way. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he, he really made it his mission for a while. And in about, well, let's see, three months or something after the breakup, I was um, I was taking like a, a summer course. I guess it must have been a little bit more than three months later because I was taking a summer course and um, I came out to my car from my dorm one night and all the windows were smashed with like a big rock, which was like on the passenger seat. And yet nothing was stolen and no other car in the parking lot was damaged. And I'm sure it was him. I'm absolutely sure. Because around that same time, for some reason, after months of radio silence, he started calling me and saying, do you have any idea how much I hate you? And things like that. He was mad because I took his friend away, the the friend that used to be a police officer that was there the night. He was mad that I took him with me when I, you know. And he was convinced we'd been sleeping together, which we absolutely had not. It was nonsense. So bizarre. The behavior is just so unsettling and dangerous and malicious it's yeah i'm yeah 100 percent. there was a lot of malice absolutely you're right absolutely so after so you got him out of your life and let's kind of talk about the healing um Mm -hmm. what did that what did that look like for you well at first i i did a really terrible job of that to be honest it the immediate aftermath was a lot of really unfortunate (laughs) ineffective attempts at coping so, like, it took me a little while to get out of the eating disorder. It was a lot of very different, like, different, very short relationships, if you could call them that. Mm. Um, seeking validation from, you know, these very, you know, fling-type relationships with different people. And um, some of those were extremely ill-advised. And some of them were good for me, you know. It just, I mean, there was one guy in particular who, he broke my heart a little bit. He was definitely a rebound guy, but he also did did me a lot of good in terms of helping me get out of the eating disorder, and he was very complimentary of my looks, and that was something I really needed 
and he was gorgeous oh my goodness this guy he was like the prettiest man pretty and kind of dumb bless him but he did me a lot of good <laughs> and so there i don't know i did a really poor job of coping at first basically just like self-medicating with sex and and um probably drinking a little too much and stuff um but over time the further i got away from it the more i started actually confronting it and talking about it was with friends and you know, getting into better, healthier relationships. And I never had another relationship as bad as that one. I did get into another one that had its moments where I would say there was some emotional abuse, but definitely not as bad. And I got out of it quickly once I realized that was going on because I learned my lesson. And um, I don't know. I mean, I I never, and this is bizarre. I told you this when we were talking about doing this that I never actually spoke to a therapist. Even though I did go to therapy for other things, I never really touched on this with a therapist, which is very weird to me. I probably should have. Um, Like, I developed OCD when I was in graduate school, and I went to a cognitive behavior therapist for that, which was very effective. And I think I told her about it, but I didn't really get into any details. And I don't know. I think I... I think I just, I talked a lot about it with people that I know love me, you know, close friends, and I wrote about it a lot. I've always been a journaler, so I wrote it out, and I wrote about it. I went to grad school for writing, and I wrote about it in grad school, and, you know, I I, I never really embarked upon a strategic plan for healing from it it just kind of happened over time right and i guess healing is sort of um it can be a lifelong process right and it is uh, yeah i don't think it's like an a to b type situation where you're like wow i'm healed wow it's great you know (laughs) um so i think that could still be evolving for you it Um, is it most definitely is like i said i mean it's been popping up in the past couple of years for some reason, and it hadn't before, really. I remember when I met my husband, I was petrified to tell him. Because I, and I think that a lot of people who've survived abuse can relate to this, I felt like it had damaged me and sullied me, when actually it, the only person sullied by it is him. And I get that intellectually, but emotionally you feel like it's damaged you. And that you're tainted somehow, and that you, you feel ashamed because you let someone do this stuff to you, and you let yourself be degraded, and you, that's something I've had to deal with. And it, honestly, if you talk about healing, a lot of healing happened when I told my husband about it, when we were first starting to get serious, and was just terrified to tell him. Because I thought, for some reason, I thought he would think less of me, which is just astounding now, especially knowing who he is and that he's the kindest person I've ever met and you know he was so great about it and that helped a lot telling people you trust I think and like letting yourself be a little bit vulnerable and just letting it out I think is really helpful but I would I'm a huge advocate of therapy I I know now I should have I really probably should have gone to a therapist about all of this I don't know why I didn't honestly I'm a very private person, which is why it's, I can't even believe I'm talking about this on a podcast. It's extremely out of character for me, but I just want to help other people with it. I think you are. And I hope so. 
therapy is something you can always explore if you feel like it's right for you. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, as a therapist, I'm not going to plug therapy too long. I think anyone listening to this podcast already, you know, knows the benefits of talking about it or creating art around it. I'm an art therapist too, so I've seen that firsthand, how that can be really healing. Um, and it can look different for everybody, I think, like I was saying before, um, that healing doesn't always look the same for everybody. It, it can be therapy, it can be writing, like it seems like writing for you is an art and that is a way that you express and, and, and kind of make sense meaning-making right? Make sense of your identity, your life. And so if that's been powerful for you, then that's the medicine, right? It, it has to fit for you. Not everyone likes to sit in a room and, and speak to another human one-on-one. -on -one. For some, that's incredibly healing. It accelerates it. For others, you know, they like to go into nature and, you know, smell, smell flowers and lay in dirt. Some people take psychedelics. Some people, <laughs> some people go on pilgrimages. Some people, you know, work with clay. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. And so I think it's about finding what works for you. And I, it sounds like, you've had to kind of rebuild a relationship with yourself and through this beautiful relationship you've built with your husband and through others, I'm sure healthy people in your life, kind of just challenging or questioning some of the messaging you, you received in this relationship about yourself. And yes, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to speak more a little bit about, you know, this idea that I, I let this happen to me. I yeah yeah I know. and I heard myself say that and then I thought I really shouldn't have said that it, it was you know it's it's just um it's something I want to know more about your perspective on because it's something that I've I've heard so much in in terms of people who are coming out of this and it's I always want to get more perspective on it yeah and then I don't know if I have any great wisdom about it really it's just it's it's what it's what I told myself I guess about about the situation at the time and I think that if you are smart and you're used to being competent in other areas of your life you can feel a lot of shame around I'm too smart for this this happens to other kinds of women not to me you know this is for a certain you have this picture in your head of an abused woman mm -hmm. and it doesn't look like you you know and so you think what the hell you know why did I let this happen when in reality, of course, I didn't let him necessarily. He was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. And he had a tight psychological grip on me because I loved him. And he abused mm. that. And he used that. And he did it intentionally, whether he acknowledges that or not. And he was a manipulator. And I was very young and had an open heart. And I wanted to help him. And I, I think that sometimes your kindness and your love for somebody can be the club that they use to beat you over the head with, <laughs> you know? And then you blame yourself. It's astonishing. It sounds like at that point in time, he didn't deserve the love that you were giving him. It, it was, it was, it's, it's probably beautiful love. I mean, despite the fact that, I mean, it, it sounds like it, it, it was terribly, it could be terribly dangerous, but I mean, it's tough. And I, I think there's a quote that I really like, um, you know, I'm a trauma survivor myself, and I have done um, different 
whatever workshops or retreats and stuff to work with that and one of the workshops I did well it was actually a group series for other survivors of incest rape they said um be careful that you you don't serve the sentence for your assaulter or your rapist your molester you know um you know because oftentimes people who wrong us sometimes there's not justice and sometimes there is and they do serve some sort of time but you know it it can be hard to to kind of sometimes you still carry the burden or you carry like oh you carry accountability for somebody else and it's it's really important to let that go at least it has been for me like this idea that like I don't have to serve time for you anymore. I gave you, no, I gave you, you took my time. Mm-hmm. So you and just I'm, did it too, right? We do it. Till we do this to ourselves. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. I gave my time to you when that's totally not mm-hmm. true. I was, yeah. I mean, we, we were both victims and it's just, it's just crazy the kind of the way the mind will work with that. Cause it's, I don't know if it just, it feels easier to take accountability. Cause at least you then can work with it to find closure. I don't know if I'm making sense, but like, you know yeah, what I'm saying? But it's. Yeah, it's tough. It's just, but yeah, don't don't serve time, for absolutely. Time for and it, and it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning is that you, you're not going to get a martyrdom. Nobody's going to canonize you. No one's going to give you a gold star or a medal for suffering. And what is it from Orange Is the New Black that pain is a part of life and suffering is a choice? <laughs> I think that's really powerful for me anyway. That line on that show just hit me like a ton of bricks. That's true. I think it's true. You're going to have pain, but suffering is a choice. And I think that might be what, even though I wouldn't have put it in those words at the time, what, you know, little 20-year-old me finally figured out sitting in front of the Christmas tree that night. It's like, I'm going to stop doing this right now and get out of this. And, And I think, too, like, part of it is about forgiveness, as much as I hate to say that, because I still kind of hope that he has, like, permanent athlete's foot and, like, you know, can never find a parking spot. But, (laughs) and I'm sure he's probably still a really unhappy person, but, you know, the way that I look at forgiveness is, like, it's not about him, it's about me not letting him have power over me anymore, and just realizing, like, this was an incredibly damaged person who did not have his shit figured out (laughs) by any means, Mm -hmm. and was using extremely terrible coping mechanisms for that, one of which was abusing me. Mm-hmm. What he did afterward, I have no idea. How he coped when he didn't have me to push around, I don't know. Probably went off the rails pretty bad, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But um, but I do forgive him in the sense that I he does not have power over me anymore, for sure. I, I, I love the idea that forgiveness isn't about him, it's about me. It's about, you know, I don't want to hold on to this anymore. I... Yeah. It's like a release. There, it's not a. It's not even about accepting what happened or being complacent. It's very different, and I think it's very powerful that you are able to do that. Yeah, and it's not saying that anything he did was okay because it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It's just you know, it's just I don't want to be in this holding pattern with you anymore. I don't want connection to you anymore. So, but I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Like it's, I live in the same town with him now. I didn't for most of my adult life. I moved out of state and you know, lived in a bunch of different states for a while. I moved around a lot in my 20s and 30s, and now we're back in in my home state, and I live in the same town 
And I still occasionally when I'm out and about think, oh, God, what if I what if I bump right into him at the grocery store? It's never happened, oddly enough, in the like 10 years I've been back here. It's never happened once. So he must not get out much or something. (laughs) But he lives here. I know he does because I still have mutual friends with the guy, Hmm. which is bizarre. And I teach um, graduate students uh, at a university and I actually have a student who knows him through her boyfriend and for some re- some reason some way knew that and said do you know uh and said my abuser's name and it just took my breath away and i said yes <laughs> we dated briefly why and she said oh well he's a good friend of my husband's and my husband when she, when he saw my syllabus he remembered you and i thought okay great i'm not going to tell you the backstory on that so i just said <sighs> Oh, that's interesting. And then I immediately went out and texted my husband and said, holy shit, <laughs> you know, this, that Yikes. just happened and that was unsettling. Yes. So it can, it can rise up and smack you in the head, but, but let me tell you, and I know it's a complicated situation and I don't judge anybody for being scared. I don't judge anybody for not knowing how to get out. I don't judge anybody for especially if you have children with your abuser or you're financially dependent on your abuser, any of that. Like, I don't, I don't judge you, but please, please, if you're in a situation like this, even if you're not being hit, even if there's nothing physical, remember what I said earlier about so many cases where the first violence ever was a murder or a serious assault if you and and also you know so many people are in situations where there's both physical and emotional abuse Mm -hmm. and sexual and financial whatever you know you just a bruise on your cheek will heal in a few days but being told that you're not worthy of love like that that's gonna sting for a long time And I think that stuff can genuinely do lasting damage to your sense of who you are and your personal truth. And it can take a long time to unravel all that. And the longer you stay in it, and the longer you're isolated from your support system, and the longer you start to repeat those messages in your own head that they're giving you about how worthless and gross and unattractive and how no one else is going to want you and all that stuff, the longer you're in it, the more damage it's going to do. And I just can't encourage people enough to get educated about how to make a safety plan. The Domestic Violence Hotline has a great website. There are some really great apps you can use to help you get safely out and get resources and get advice. And Absolutely. Please, for the love of God, you get, that we know of, we get one precious life. And, man, don't waste one more minute of it on suffering. I'll definitely put some resources in the show notes for anyone who's curious about any of these really life-saving and vital uh, organizations and and programs that you've spoken of. Yeah, because I do think that it's important. It's important to put it out there. Like you were saying, this isn't love. That's no. not love. That is not love. It is absolutely not. And it doesn't mean that you can't feel like you love this person just because you love somebody it doesn't mean that you um that you should be with them as we wrap up is there 
you've you've said it all so beautifully and I can't <laughs> even thank you enough for sharing this powerful story. Is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up? Just that I think just just yeah. value yourself and reach out to the people that you know care about you that are you know that you know would be there for you. And even if it's been a while since you've talked to them, don't assume they're going to be mad at you. Don't assume that they're not going to want to hear from you. Try not to internalize the messages that your abuser is giving you. And reach out to somebody because you can get so caught up in it that it starts to seem normal. And you start to lose your compass for what's normal and what's okay and what's not. You start to get numb to it. And you start to lose. And then the first time, like I said, I, I bumped into my best friend in the mall and she said, oh! <gasps> what happened to you? And it really was like, oh, wow. Because, you know, I to see it in her eyes that, like, I was haggard and way too thin and looked bad, and then to tell her just a tiny sliver of what was going on and have her react that, holy shit, that is not okay. We need to get you out of there. Sometimes that's the slap you need it's, to wake yeah, you up. Yeah, definitely someone to just kind of challenge, like, that's not normal. No, yeah. that's actually not love. That's that's not okay. And to kind of support you and, and help you come up with safe ways to remove yourself from the relationship or to stand up to, well, not stand up to them, but I guess like sometimes it takes a good friend to basically give you perspective to say like, no, these these are not healthy boundaries. These are the boundaries you need to be setting. And then if not, then leaving the relationship, if you feel unsafe to set those boundaries even, you know, like Absolutely. on a smaller scale. And not necessarily standing up to them, but standing up in general. Mm -hmm. You know, you're still right. in there. However beaten down you might feel, like, you're still alive in there, you know? Yeah. I promise you. Whitney, thank you so much for coming on today. And um, I really, really just appreciate your vulnerability and your resilience and your choice that you've made to share. And I, I really think this is going to reach a lot of people. Thank you. And thank you for yours as well. I mean, I think it's an amazing thing that you're doing with this show and I hope it helps lots and lots of people. So I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. So do I. Thank you. Intro and outro music is Fairies and Boots by Up and Adam. If you'd like to share your story on the podcast, please email me we are magic pod at gmail.com find us on instagram at we are magic podcast <laughs>